It's all about getting down to it, digging into the nitty gritty, asking hard questions, and sometimes the questions people are too afraid to ask. Most importantly, in this space, we keep it real, incorporating diverse perspectives and experiences in our conversations. I'm Simone D. Ross, and I'm your host. We have amazing panelists, so let's talk about some things. Our first topic, according to an analysis by the Colorado Sun, at least three Colorado congressional candidates are residing outside the districts they're running to represent. While the decision to run in different districts is legal, it leaves the candidates prone to political scrutiny. Let's start with Patty Calhoun, founder and editor of Westward. Patty, the great issue divide, potentially, it seems like these candidates might be running in districts where issues and the community served are taking more precedent over the district they live in. What's an argument in support of these kinds of politics or even against it? Well, I think in Colorado, if you are not running in your district for Congress, you're making a mistake. We see Alex Walker, who's gotten a lot of attention because he's running up in congressional, third congressional district, Boebert's district. So he's having a lot of fun, poking fun at Boebert. We all remember his ad that came out in February where he had flying poo hitting the ground. Well, plenty of the poo has now spattered on him because it has come out in the last week or so that he doesn't live in the district. He, Avon, which is his alleged home, used to be part of the district, but it's a very different part of district th than the rest of District 3. And in fact, um, Carrie Donovan, when, who lived nearby, pulled out of the race against Boebert simply because she thought it would be too difficult. She had no path to win if she wasn't living in the district. It's legal to run federally. If you live in the state, you can pick your district. Jason Crow actually didn't live in the sixth when he ran for it and won, but he lived next door. And he represented a lot of Aurora interests. The three who are up for the primary at the end of June really have a long shot, even if they did live in their district, which they have to, which voters want them to represent. I think you bring up some very, very interesting points, especially when we come to the scrutiny. Again, it's not illegal, but they can be scrutinized. And I think it's poignant that you said that they are making a mistake. But, but Dave, these are new politicians that are emerging. And so are they making a statement? Are they saying districts don't matter? We want to focus on issues. Do districts, in fact, matter? Well, living in the district, is, as Patty said, is not an absolute bar. Jason Crow got elected from, uh, started off the campaign not living in, in Aurora and then later moved there. But the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, technically is elected by, is in fact elected by the people of San Francisco where she owns a little brownstone. But she and her husband uh, actually live in a mansion 50 miles out of town uh, in Napa. And I think that's a good thing for public safety, because when her husband, Pete, is driving home drunk at night, uh, <laughs> it, it's better that he only goes a few miles to the mansion instead of 50 miles with city traffic into San Francisco. If you're a, say, centimillionaire like Jared Polis, um, you can cover all your bases. Before he was elected governor, he actually owned and may still own houses in four different congressional districts. So he was ready to run... Uh, from everywhere. You know, that's, that's one of the reasons he's a successful guy. Is he, he plans for contingencies. I think of the candidates who don't live in the district, the only one I think who's 
got any chance of actually being sworn in in Congress next January is uh, Tyler Alcorn, uh, who lives near the 8th District and said would, would the, the new open seat in the north suburbs in, in Greeley, he would move into it if he wins. So this is interesting. You all have both said unequivocally, these candidates have zilp, zero, zit, zilch, chanch of winning. Um, some of that could be attributed to districts. Some of it could be attributed to that they are new politicians. Um, but there's another thing, and this is, I feel like, a big pink elephant. Um, they've switched their party affiliation, too, a, a few times. There's many candidates who've switched this affiliation prior to announcing their candidacy. Um, Amy, what's up with that? Are, are we, like, is this a loyalty issue? Is this just the new emergence of new politics and new politicians? Well, certainly, you know, it's something that I think it is an occurrence that's happening. But one of the things that I point out is that, you know, voters are savvy. Um, and I know for, for us, um, especially when I look, talk about educators, um, we, look at, we don't look at party affiliation when we recommend candidates. We look at values. And so I think our, our voters do that same thing. They scrutinize candidates based on their values, the things that they represent, the things that they stand for. Um, and certainly I would agree that this issue of living in the community that you're running to represent is, is, is important. That's one of our uniquely Colorado things is that our, our communities are very different across our state. And so you need to know and be a part of that community um, to represent those voters and constituents in that community. You bring up a really interesting point because there's been a lot of conversation about the polarization of politics. And we're talking a lot now, especially as we look at at these upcoming elections, we have to become more moderate. These are conversations that we're all hearing across the board. And so I love that you mentioned the conversation about values. So I want to ask you, Marianne, what is the line between we're running a campaign on values, hence the reason why I'm running in this district, because it aligns with my values, my upbringing, the community that I grew up in. What's the thin line, though, between making that staunch value statement or maybe being opportunistic, wanting to have more visibility when we think about everything that's happening with this districting and switching party lines. Um, what statement is this making about partisanship and, and values and moderate voters? What we have, we have a very interesting situation in Colorado where in this primary, um, unaffiliated voters, Democrats, Republicans, anybody that wants to party switch in order to vote in the primary can do that. And you have to remember that the largest block of voters in this state is unaffiliated voters. So they're opportunistic, absolutely. I think that, you know, this, and this is very much reflected in CD3, where you have a, a push to get uh, unaffiliated and Democratic voters to switch to Republican for the primary in order to vote for Don Corum, who is running against Lauren Boebert in that primary. Uh, the opportunistic side of it doesn't end there, of course. Uh, party, the party affiliation, uh, obviously, where, you know, in CD3, do you, want, do you want to be known as a Republican in CD3 or do you want to be known as a moderate Democrat? I don't think it actually matters all that much because I don't think any of the Democrats who are running in that race really have a good chance of making it out. And this, this also goes back to the whole residency thing. I think this would be a much, much bigger issue if any of these candidates who ha don't live in their districts or are recent, uh, recently moved to those districts, if they were actual contenders for the seat, and not one of them is. 
So it sounds like we've come to some agreement at this table <laughs> that, that these candidates aren't, aren't strong contenders at all. So we can agree on that. We've got another topic that we want to discuss, and this one is incredibly interesting. So after many discussions and residential surveys, Denver City Council has identified the 2023 budget priorities to present to Mayor Michael Hancock. These highlights include an increase in affordable housing, community engagement, redefining public safety, workforce and business recovery, increasing transportation, and a focus on environmental policies. So I guess, really, the big question, we're going to start this with David Koppel, research director of the Independence Institute. Budget appropriations illustrate priorities. We all know this. Where should the greatest resource allocation be? Well, clearly to Channel 12, because this four-page <laughs> report, um, I never imagined I would hear someone say that that was really interesting. And uh, this is the channel you go to for you find pre-statements about where the budget should go to be interesting stuff. This is, uh, as you said, uh, hardcore TV that digs into things. Um, there, there are some good ideas in there, like funding mental health and also funding for a study that's going on in one of the police districts about the causes of crime. And it, it's very important to look at ways to reduce crime in the future by looking at causes like, like mental illness or, or fatherlessness. But today, right now, the people of Denver also need real public safety, not some imaginary redefinition. People right now are suffering from very high levels of automobile theft, catalytic converter theft, bike theft, bank robberies, aggravated assault, and homicide. People are afraid to walk around downtown Denver and other neighborhoods. Decent people are being driven out of public spaces by gangs and violent vagrants. Yet the Denver City Council seems to treat these perpetrators like they're the victims of circumstances who just need a bigger welfare state. You know, that's, that's what the Officer Krupke, Officer Krupke song in West Side Story is about. But if you're the victim, it doesn't really matter to you if the criminal is depraved or deprived. Either way, the criminal has to be taken off the street and isolated until the criminal is ready to stop victimizing people. You know, as Patty reported in as Westward's Patty's Westward reported uh, recently, arrests in Denver are way down compared to 2019. We need more police on the streets, more detectives out there to solve crimes, and sufficient jail capacity so that everyone who is a violent threat to the public can be put away until they no longer are. You're, you're bringing about a big point. And again, it seems like our theme today might be pink elephants. We are all talking about Denver and how safe is this city? Um, is it the Denver of the 90s? Is this a completely Orwellian new space that Denver is in? And sometimes it certainly feels like that. Um, interestingly, one of the proposals in the budget is a community engagement agency. So I wanna ask you this question, um, Amy. Do these priorities adequately address Denver's most urgent needs? And what agencies might we actually want to look at engaging or even creating to really get to what we need to do to make our city a safe space that is sustainable, that's affordable, that we all feel good about living in? Well, you know, in education, we talk a lot about the bureaucracy that exists uh, within the system. And so I'm not sure that we need more bureaucracy to solve our problems that are 
cities like Denver are facing, um, you know, so creating more agencies, offices, et cetera. What we really need to do is fund the solutions. Um, you know, affordable housing is on the list of these budget priorities. That's something that has a gigantic impact on education um, in the sense of educators as well as our students. We know that when our students don't have stable, safe, secure housing, it impacts their ability to learn in the classroom. Um, just a few years ago, uh, part of the Denver teacher strike was about uh, the lack of affordable housing for our educators. You have um, educators serving our students in our public schools in Denver in particular who could not afford to live in the and serve the communities that they work in. That happens all across our state. It's not uniquely a Denver problem. Um, but I really don't think that creating a new agency is, is the, the route to solve these problems, but it's really about let's dig in and truly fund the solution so that we can solve these problems that um, our cities are facing. We know many of our, our teachers cannot live in Denver, even though they work and serve the students of Denver. So um, that's what I would look for is those real sustainable funded solutions. Absolutely. So we've heard safety is a big thing. Affordable housing is a big thing. That's a big thing for our most vulnerable population. That's a big thing for educators. It's a big thing for companies even considering moving, moving to Denver, which we need to, to get our workforce and our economy sparked. You bring up something important though. You say less bureaucracy, less overhead to get these things done. So I wanna pose this question um, to you, Marianne. As we look at how do we execute this, right? Because the big thing is funding the solutions and the execution of this. If we were going to focus on affordable housing and safety, and maybe you even throw in a third one, what would be the best way for the city and county of Denver to effectively execute the funding and ensuring that these programs are being run so that we can all benefit? I'm not sure that I see execution in this. I see bureaucracy in this. And it, it kind of depends on how this Office of uh, Community Engagement is set up, I suppose. But, but that takes time, and that takes time away from actually getting the work done. I'm, I'm not a huge fan of expanding bureaucracy and, and because sometimes that just doesn't work, especially when you have a new bureaucracy. It takes, it takes a lot of time for them to get their feet on the ground and get out into the community and then, and you know, maybe it's, it's another year before a lot of these problems get addressed. The, the one thing that, that caught my attention was that this, this Office of, of Community Engagement was listed as their top budget priority. And allegedly they had gone out and done these residential surveys. I'd like to find one, one person in the Denver community who said, we need an office of community engagement. I, I, I think you'd be hard pressed to find somebody that does that. I wish the city well in their budget priorities, but I think that I, I'm not sure that they're addressing them in an appropriate way. When you look at the public safety issue, for example, there's not one thing in there addressing the problems that we're seeing in the Denver Police Department. The Denver Police Department is barely even mentioned in these budget priorities. That's a real concern to me because we know there are problems in DPD. Um, we've got numerous lawsuits going over the George Floyd protests, promises from DPD that they're going to fix these problems. I don't see these budget priorities actually going after addressing these DPD problems. You bring about some key points. We're all focused, especially as we are recovering. And quite frankly, some of us are really afraid about what next year brings to our city and to our nation economically. We're, we're in a space of recovery. So, so Patty, let's, let's talk about this a little bit. 
Are our city agencies even ready to respond to these budgetary priorities? What do they need to do to ready themselves? Well, they need to get out in the city and pay attention to what people are talking about. To echo everyone else at this table, it's ridiculous that we had to go have surveys and go knock on people's doors. Go stand in line at King Supers and talk to three people in line with you, and you know what the concerns are in Denver. David brought up one. I mean, that cars, catalytic converters are getting stolen if your car isn't getting stolen altogether. We did report today that DPD arrests are way down while use of force is way up, percentage-wise, which is very strange, and we need to dig into that. But why, it just seems to me, the council seems very tone deaf, very out of touch with what people are concerned about in Denver. You should be able to sit down as you at your table as the city council meeting starts and say, this is what people are really worried about in Denver, and this is what we should be focused about. I don't think we learned a single thing from this except they love bureaucracy. The Office of Community Engagement, if they're not engaged now, if the mayor's administration isn't engaged now, then what are they doing? Absolutely. So it, it begs the question, holistically, what did the data really say? <laughs> um, are we really listening and are we extrapolating the data points in the best way? I guess uh, more to come on that. Our next topic. Reports show that 14 Coloradans have died under the care of the Office of Public Guardianship, causing scrutiny by the policymakers who helped create it. The pilot program was launched in an effort to provide guardianship for people who were hospitalized and often lacked the advocacy of family or friends. Let's start with Amy Baca Olert, president of the Colorado Education Association. This is a big one, and maybe I just watch a few too many um, scary movies about guardianship. <laughs> but um, it, it makes you ask, whose job is it anyway? Um, guardians aren't healthcare providers, but there's a breakdown somewhere in the system. If in fact this program were to be revised, what, was, what exactly does revision entail? Well, certainly there should be a look into uh, what's happening with this with this program. Um, you know, guardianship is for our most vulnerable citizens is a good thing. Um, it's something that should be happening. But if you look at and find that 14 people have died, um, it does seem that there is a lack of transparency um, with what's going on in the system. And so that certainly should be one of the, the first things we should look at is the transparency. Um, and there should be a deep dive into how how it's functioning. Um, and you know, we want if there is a program that's set up to care for our most vulnerable uh, citizens, then that should be um, what's happening, not where they are. You know, where the results are are what what you just cited. Fourteen people um, dying. So certainly, um, there needs to be scrutiny, and uh, I, I believe transparency is something that should be a key factor. Absolutely. And, and, you know, the truth of the matter is these are our most vulnerable citizens, our most vulnerable um, residents, and they have some very acute issues that they're facing. And so when we talk about transparency, immediately we go back to budgets and we will, we've got to create some more funding to do more staffing and to be able to add some more oversight. But what do you think, Marianne, could be done when we're thinking about increased transparency and even communicating what that looks like what could be done? There is so much that can be done on this, and I have written a lot about this topic. I've been following the Office of Public Guardianship, which is a state office. Uh, right now they operate in just 
one district, and that's in Denver. Now, what happened this in this past year was back in January, the executive director met with uh, an oversight committee of the legislature. She didn't choose to even tell them about these 14 deaths. And this isn't out of 1,000 people. This is out of 78, an average of one person per month over the 14 months that the pilot has been running. She didn't choose to tell legislators about these deaths. And when I asked about it, it just didn't occur to her. Uh, there is no transparency in the Office of Public Guardianship. I have been asking repeatedly about information related to these 14 deaths, and and it's entirely possible that these were all natural and uh, you know not unexpected because these are very vulnerable people. These are people who are uh, and oftentimes homeless. They're they're indigent. Um, they're they're medically fragile. So, is is this unusual? We don't know because they aren't talking about it. In one of the stories that I wrote, I asked the governor's office about this and said, what are you planning to do about this? And he promised more oversight. We have yet to see anything that looks like oversight. The thing that's the most scary is that this program on July 1st is going to be able to expand into two more judicial districts in Otero and Montrose. And uh, they are due to report on the progress of this entire program in January. Six months does not give you enough time to hire, train, get people on the ground and working with these clients. And this progress report in January is 100% self-directed. There is no outside agency that's conducting this review. So what do you expect that report's gonna say? We're doing a great job. The, the transparency here is just a huge, huge problem and it would, it's on the Polis administration to step up and start looking at this. Absolutely. Um, and let's kind of dig into this a little bit more because you're raising some, some key points, right? We're talking about accountability. Um, we're talking about data integrity. We're talking obviously about transparency, but we're, we're also talking about somebody's loved ones. Um, this, is, this is very personal. And so, so, Patty, how do we drive for accountability where, where this is involved? What do we do as people? How can we be advocates and allies in this scenario? Well, you can call the governor's office and say you're really irritated that you can't find out the information. There's not a whole lot of data you have to find out here. When Marianne points out there are 14 deaths, you could look those up pretty quickly. You don't have to do a lot of bar graphs. You could really find out what has happened, and it doesn't seem like they think it's important, like they really want to. They seem to be considering the system much more than they're considering the people who are caught up in that system. So they've got, they've got time to turn it around. It was an important move because, like with children who have guardian ad litems, there's so many people who need this kind of help, but they need it to be sincere and truly helpful. Absolutely. Um, these are all excellent points that we're bringing about. And so with these brilliant minds, right here at this table. And this has all fallen on you, Dave, okay? You have to sum up what the brilliant minds would say. What are some key indicators to evaluate programmatic efficacy? Well, and the, 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 the brilliant mind on this issue is Marion, who's really reported it in depth, and, and all I know is to just agree with everything she said, <laughs> in, in, including that of, of the, the 14 deaths, as she said, these are people who are medically fragile. The problem is they're, they're not somebody's loved one. The, the reason this guardianship program exists in the first place is there's nobody who wants to take care of them, and they're, by definition, people who have been in and out of hospitals all the time. The median death for the, uh, the fourth age of death was uh, 67, so maybe that's within an, an expected range, maybe not. It's an essential pro program to have because hospitals can't discharge someone who's mentally incapable of taking care of themselves 
and has no one who will help them take help them uh, pro get care. Uh, and so you have people stuck in hospitals and the huge expense to the taxpayers that can go on a long time when there, there's no no guardian for them. So this is a necessary program. But as, as Marion says, it, it's being run so badly and so non-transparently. How do we even know what what the data are? And you know, it, it does seem premature to expand it before it's functioning well in at least one district. Thank you all so much. Um, we are digging into some some big stuff, and so now I think we need a little a little levity. Let's have some fun together. Disgrace of the week. <laughs> well, this is an ongoing disgrace. The disgrace of the Build the Wall movement, which had a lot of intent, uh, uh, people who had, were sincere about it, who wound up getting ripped off by Steve Bannon and other con artists. Steve Bannon got pardoned. He won't, he won't ever see the court because of this. But there is a Coloradan who's currently before a jury that's deadlocked on whether or not he had ripped off people. All right, Dave, bumper sticker too. Give us a quick bumper sticker. People rightfully disgrace, call Trump a disgrace for all his lies about a stolen election. And yet in, in Denver, the, uh, some group called Elect Women, Electing Women, is holding a fundraiser for Stacey, a Stacey Abrams, the big election denier from Florida. If you're against election denials, you can't say it's okay when one party does it, and, and, uh, but not when the other does. Well, and this certainly is not fun or jovial, but I would say um, the fact that we have that Congress has not acted on any sort of gun reform, um, while we had saw 19 families um, bury their 10, 9, 10, 11 year olds, and that certainly is a disgrace um, as a country. We should all be thinking about. Women in Journalism reported this morning that five uh, women journalists have been murdered in the month of May, which is the highest number um, for the past year. These deaths were uh, in places like Mexico and Chile. So to the women journalists out there, be safe. Wow. All right, bumper sticker. Say something nice, quick. Dusty Saunders, uh, longtime Rocky Mountain News columnist, wrote some for The Post, a really great guy and showed just how the media landscape has changed. This weekend is the Platinum Jubilee of Queen Elizabeth II, reigning for 70 years. A outstanding example to everyone of uh, uh, dedication to duty, honor, and country. Well, of course, I have to thank our educators, many of whom are wrapping up uh, the hardest school year they have faced in a really long time. And so I say thank you to all the public school educators, and I hope they have a rejuvenating and restful summer. Uh, June is Pride Month, so to all of our LGBTQ um, friends and family and neighbors, happy Pride Month. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Colorado Inside Out. Good night.